0: So in our study of James, we're trying to figure out what steadfast joy looks like under the pressures of hardship and suffering. That's why James wrote this book. He wanted to help hurting and displaced people know how to faithfully follow Jesus when the temperature gets turned up in their lives, and in particular for some of them when persecution even comes their way. My guess is the last week you've experienced in your own life as a follower of Jesus an element of this pressure cooker environment. For instance, no doubt somebody said something and you had a bunch of things that you wanted to say but you were biting your tongue. At least once this week. Maybe not every time, but once. And you were like, "Mm." or someone put something on social media and man, your thumbs were ready to rock and roll. You were like, and you just held off. But you know, the pressure of the moment kind of creates this impetus to kind of go for it. Or or maybe in the context of just an exhausting day or a hard week where you're just worn out and tired, You, you know the battle of how to try and think right. And sometimes... Thinking rightly is even more difficult when you're exhausted. So the the pressure cooker of life kind of turns up the temperature, and in that moment, there's a temptation to do all sorts of things that later on in life we would regret, maybe even later that day. And in particular, there's a kind of pressure that happens that creates blame. There's some of you who whenever something bad happens, your first response is somebody's to blame for this. That's just maybe how some of us are more wired than others. But what can happen is that the more difficult life becomes, the more inclined we are to embrace kind of the blame game. And today what we're gonna look at is this central idea, this caution that James gives us, that pain creates blame. It's one thing when your pain causes you to wrongfully blame your spouse, or your pain causes you to blame your leadership at work, or maybe when you look on the news. You know, the pain of culture just causes you to blame the other party. You don't know why they're wrong, but you're pretty sure they are, and it's their fault somehow. But what happens when that pain creates blame, and it's laid at God's feet. That's a different issue. It's a serious issue. And it's one that James wants to help us understand. He wants us, to help, wants us to understand this, not only because it's a wrong view of God, but also because it's not helpful when it comes to defeating temptation. In fact, it can actually cause you to give extra space to particular sin issues or other temptations as you lay the blame at God's feet. So today we're gonna examine the nature of temptation and James puts this in the middle of his book, in the middle of chapter one rather, in order to help us understand that remaining steadfast under trial, as we saw last week, passing the test of genuineness, involves wrestling with what do I do with my temptation And how do I think about it correctly? So James gives us two admonitions that we're gonna look at and then some applications at the end. Admonition number one is a caution. Don't blame God. And the second is an explanation. Take a look at your own desires. So James would tell us that when the pressure of life gets really tough, rather than playing the blame game, be sure you don't blame God and take a careful look at your own desires desires he does this as a means to help us persevere and to remain steadfast because at the end of the day what you're going to see is that blaming god is not something that's filled with hope but rather there is hope when we understand the nature of our own desires and we see how god's grace can be applied to them if you're here today or listening and you're not yet a christian i hope to be able to show you in in a a small way how desires are at the heart of what Christianity comes to solve, and that Jesus comes to give us a new heart to radically, supernaturally, and miraculously change what we love. It's the miracle called the new birth, that God takes you and changes you from the inside out. So let's take a look at what the text tells us. First, he cautions us to not blame God. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the first admonition that James gives us here is what we should not do. And it's pretty clear, pretty straightforward, but there's layers and there's nuance. The command is don't blame God for your temptation. But it's not that simple. There's some complications here that we need to talk about because we have to wrestle with. So where do trials actually come from? And are some of them from God and not from others? And are they from God at all? And if not, how can we say that he rules the universe? And for that matter, are all trials from God and therefore his goodness is somehow compromised? So those are just a few of the the tension points that we have to wrestle with. Now James issues this command, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. Now, James is interested in more than just words. He's not just wanting you not to say this, but what he's really concerned about is the judgment that's underneath your words. It's the judgment that would say, this temptation is happening because God is the one who's created it. I'm tempted, because of you, God. So under the pressure of circumstances, you can imagine somebody starting to buckle and saying, I wouldn't have to struggle if you wouldn't tempt me. James is saying, those are problematic words and that's a problematic mindset. So the question is, is God the one who is tempting me? Now, the challenge here is that the word tempt in the original language is the Greek word periazo, and it can be used for both a trial and a temptation. That's really important. So the word, the same word can be used as a trial or a temptation. Let me show you this. Look at James chapter one in verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. That's the same word. So in verse two, it's translated as trials. In verse 13, it's translated as tempted or Verse 12, just the verse before verse 13, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. The same word. So between 12 and 13, James uses the same Greek word, but it has a different kind of meaning. So that's part of the complication. But James wants us to acknowledge that God isn't involved in the temptation, but we do have to acknowledge that God is involved in testing. For instance, in the book of Genesis chapter 22, the Bible says that God tested Abraham when he said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. That's one example. I can give you many others. Book of Judges, God doesn't remove all of the nations around Israel in order to test them by virtue of their faithfulness. So we have to recognize that there's a a layered and a nuanced issue here that God allows and ordains trials in our lives. He does. We we, we can't take the position that somehow God remains distant from everything in life that happens, even the bad things. However, as Doug Moo, a commentator in the book of James, says, the Old Testament makes clear that God does test his people in the sense that he brings them into situations where their willingness to obey him is tested. Now I know I'm creating some tension internally, just stay with me. It's important to understand both sides of this. There is a distinction that we need to make here that God designs trials in order to prove or strengthen our faith, but he never seeks to induce us to sin or to destroy our faith. So in other words, God uses trials for his good purposes he ordains difficulties, but the purpose of those difficulties is to strengthen and prove our genuineness. Now, why can God not be assigned blame for our temptations? Well, James answers this with two reasons. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For, here's reason number one, God cannot be tempted with evil and secondly, he himself tempts no one. So the first reason why God can't be involved in the temptation is that he's not tempted with evil. In other words, there's no inclination within himself to tempt people to sin. He has no temptation to tempt you, no desire for you or in the world to be tempted. There's nothing in them in him that would want you to fall or to fail. The second reason that James says is that God doesn't tempt anyone. So one is a motivation, the other is an actualization. Not only is God immune from sin, not only is he immune from temptation, but he's also not involved in any resulting temptation. Any temptation is the result of either the devil or as we'll see in a moment, our own desires. Now some of you are thinking, wait a minute Mark, doesn't the possibility of temptation mean that somehow God is to blame? It's tempting to think that way because then you could lay the blame of your sinful response at God's feet. After all, you could say, if God wanted me to obey, then why not just make it the only option for me to obey? But what you need to know is that the choice between one thing or another is central to making a test a test. In other words, the possibility of two choices is critical for anything to be a test. A test loses its value if there's only one choice. If you show up at an exam and somebody asks you to answer a question and there's only one option, it's really no longer a test, it's a study guide. (laughs) For instance, you'd never know how smart you are if the only option on a test was the right one. Or you'd never know if your basketball team was any good if there was no competition and there was no possibility of losing. So making a choice is part of the test and it's vital to it. And understanding this and embracing it without blame is central to maturity. Let me illustrate this for you. I'm arguing that understanding the nature of the choice as implicit in the test and not rejecting or pushing against that, why do I have to choose, is central to what it means to be mature. Throughout my lifetime, I've had opportunity to be a basketball official and also a basketball coach. And it's amazing what happens in the context of athletics just to demonstrate this. You could put this in other categories as well. But imagine, for instance, a young man at a free throw line, and this is one of the reasons why I love being in that arena, is because of what it reveals. And you could imagine as a parent watching your son or daughter on a basketball court, if this was their response, how mortified you would be. Imagine a boy is shooting a free throw, but he keeps missing and the coach comes up to him and begins instructing him about how he should shoot the free throw a little better and then he says, well, they should make the hoop a little bigger. The problem isn't my form. The problem is whoever designed this hoop, it's just way too small. How are you supposed to put a ball through that little hoop? Or imagine... In a really intense game, the coach calls the team over, they're in a timeout, three seconds left, tie game, really stressful, and someone on the bench says, I don't know who decided we should play this team, this is way too hard. That athletic director, why did you choose these teams? Should choose easy teams. Or imagine a player running down the court, dribbling the basketball correctly, suddenly picks it up and starts running down the court. Referee blows his whistle, says that's a travel. Imagine the basketball player looking at the ref saying, it's a stupid rule anyways. Or how many parents have you said that at a soccer game about offsides, right? Why is this even a rule in the first place? It's stupid. Let them be closer to the goal, right? So if you're responding that way, is that not a sign of immaturity? Parents will have conversations with their kids. Listen, in order to understand, you have to be okay with the rules and play within it. If every time you blame the rule maker or you blame the design of the game, it's not a sign of how unfair life is, it's actually a sign of how immature you are. That's the point that James is making, that there would be a temptation for us to take our suffering and our hardship and to lay the blame at God's feet. And James's caution here is not only because that's incorrect about God but also because there's no hope in that thought. So his caution is don't blame God because secondly he would cause us call us to examine our desires consider them And so he explains how does temptation happen. So if you're listening to this and you're not yet a Christian, I'm right now about to explain to you why you do bad things. And if you're a Christian, I'm gonna explain to you why bad things are still tempting. And if you understand what this text is saying, it actually could help you this next week, be able to win the battle with things that you know are wrong and you don't want to do, but you kinda wanna do them. So how do you win that battle? Here's what James says. Each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So, James acknowledges that there is something underneath our temptation. It's not God. Other texts in the Bible would tell us the devil is certainly involved. James, though, wants the book to puts the focus squarely on the internal desire battle. Again, desire is a, a challenging word, because in the Bible, there can be good desire. Same Greek word used. Jesus talked about wanting to desire to eat the Passover with his disciples. In Luke 22 and verse 15, there's good desires. And then there's bad desires. What's the difference? The difference is the object that you desire. The Bible tells us that desires can be misplaced. They can be wicked. For example, Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 1 Corinthians ten six describes the Old Testament stories as these took place as examples that we might not desire evil as they did. So what James is suggesting here is that behind the actions of the flesh and the wrong things that we do are evil desires. So when pressure comes and we are tempted James wants you to understand, don't lay that at God's feet, but instead understand the nature of our desires and how they play into temptation. Or to put it this way, temptation would be pointless and powerless were there not a desire associated with it. So desire and temptation go together. And so James connects them. After identifying the problem of desire, he then tells us what happens. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. So to be enticed is the offering of something. It's like bait. You see it, you hear it, and something that you would want. It's something that's attractive, something that's appealing. Those of you in the computer space and internet World will know about something called clickbait—something that's a shocking headline that makes you go, "Ooh, what's that?" or a provocative image, "Hmm, curious about that?" or, or something that's just outrageous. Right? The, the, the whole sort of news media and uh, internet traffic is really conditioned on this desire-click response. So. It's gonna be rare that something's gonna flash on your screen that's like amazing good news that's super boring, no one's gonna click on that. But instead, the things that are outrageous, that make us mad, that are appealing, that are attractive, these are the things that you think will give you what you want. It's the thing that fulfills your desire. That's the nature of temptation, to be enticed. And then to be lured is to chase after that which is enticing. It means to draw someone away or to pull you down a particular path. So the, the words have action somehow associated with it. So it's one thing to be enticed, like I desire that thing, and then I start to take action steps, and I'm starting to be pulled or lured a particular direction. I'm not a hunter, but imagine making some sort of Maybe a duck call or something, or a turkey gobble that suddenly, if you're hunting a a duck or a turkey, causes them to hear and then turn and then move. That's the idea. They heard, they were enticed, and then they moved. And what James is saying is that's how temptation happens. And rather just than saying, God, why is this even possible in my life? Why is this happening? James would have us look internally and then he tells us what happens next when do- desire has conceived, in verse 15, it gives birth to sin. So notice he uses this birth metaphor. It's as though something was created within you and then you give birth to it. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It's remarkable that James is warning here about the nature of temptation and that it leads to our own self-destruction. We're enticed by our own desires, we're lured by our own desires. It then creates sin, and when sin is fully grown, it becomes a spiritual suicide mission. So James is saying all this because he wants us to be a bit self-reflective. He wants us to think about the nature of temptation, for us to realize the problem at the desire level. Let me show you another place in James where he does this. Take your Bible, go to James chapter four sometime in 2021 will be in this text. And you might wonder, man, there seems like there's a lot of quarreling going on and fights and arguments and people being nasty. Why is that happening? Why, what, what's, what's going on? Or maybe you even feel it in your own soul. Like, I just have lots of tension. James answers this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, there's that word. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So what happens is that suffering and hardship tend to intensify blame shifting. I'm sure you've seen this play out. I mean, just choose your favorite object of your blame. You got a troubled marriage and you're just like, the reason we have problems is because of my spouse. Maybe as a teenager, the reason that my life is hard is because of my parents. Maybe at work, the reason things are difficult is because of leadership. The reason that things are a mess in our country is because of this particular political leader or that particular uh, leader. We tend to blame Right now, we tend to blame our enemy first and then find a way to justify it. This plays out at home, at work, church, in our relationships, the political realm. And it's really easy to say and do things when you don't consider your role in having wrong desires and how that plays into the mix and what James wants you to be careful of is that when the pressure gets great your ten- tendency to blame goes up well if they well if they well if he well if she well if if god and James wants you to understand what is the true nature of temptation that first don't blame god Secondly, this explanation. What's happening is there's this this war that's happening within you at the desire level. Now let me unpack this more fully and help you understand how do we make this work in the next week? What does this translate to as it relates to things that are going to come your way? Because you're gonna enter a world with all kinds of challenges and difficulties, what do we do, especially as the tension gets greater? Number one, here's four of them. Be aware of how temptation happens. By simply listening to this message today, you're going to be more aware of the desire battle. And just being aware of it, like having a little bit of a dashboard where your eyes are on the desire thing will be helpful. Because instead of blaming God or blaming the devil or blaming other people, which always results in you justifying sinful behavior. Well, I wouldn't have said that if she wouldn't have. Well, I wouldn't have done that if, and what we do is is we can use all kinds of justifications for behavior that we know is inherently sinful and we don't stop to think about what's going on inside of us. And what this could actually do is lead you to a place where you are now asking God to help facilitate the right desires within you, because you may be listening to this and thinking, that's the problem, I don't have a desire to not fight. I don't have the desire to be careful with my words. I don't have the desire for this or that or the other thing. And that's where the beauty of God's grace comes in, where the psalmist says, unite my heart to fear your name. This is where the grace of God enters into the mix. But to be aware of how temptation happens. So when you encounter difficulties this week, just stop for a moment and think about your desires. What should you think? Here's the second thing, is to ask yourself in that moment, What is it that I want? If you can do this, just to stop, don't send the email, don't send the text, don't post that yet, just wait, stop, don't respond. What is it that I want right now? Before you speak, before you look, before you post, before you like, before you share, before you act, ask yourself, what is it that I'm seeking? I wanna be liked, I wanna be loved, I wanna feel safe, I don't wanna be afraid, I wanna feel secure, I wanna be treated fairly, I wanna be desired, I wanna be respected, I wanna be affirmed, I wanna be praised. Listen, all of those things in and of themselves are not fundamentally wrong things unless they take over your soul and then become the way in which you justify wrong behavior. And just asking yourself these questions helps to surface the lines of the battle. Ask yourself, what do I want? Most of the times we don't ask ourselves that question and just asking it gets to the heart of what James is trying to help us to do here. Third, in the middle of the asking of that question, affirm God's ability to help you. See, part of the blame trap is that it makes us act as if we're powerless. I wanna be loved, they're not loving me, so therefore, whoop, and we're off to the races. I wanna be respected, they said this, as a result, I'm this. I'm mad, they shouldn't say that, and so therefore, and what we end up doing is self-justifying ourselves into some sort of relational oblivion where we end up destroying and burning the house down because of everything that we want. And the key is to affirm God's ability to help you. This is where today, if you're not yet a Christian, this is the missing piece. And that is the Bible tells us that Jesus comes in order to save us from our sins and to cleanse us and to give us a new heart so that we would love things that we would never love unless Jesus rescued us. This is where the sovereign love and grace of Christ is transforming because God gives you desires that you would never have, you would never have were it not for his grace and the invasion of the love of Jesus into your life. And then as a Christian, when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ and he gives you a new heart, it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means there's this inclination that now you actually are leaning a different direction and you actually have the thought, what about my desires? And you, you actually see yourself through the lens of how God sees you as a forgiven yet broken person. Then you hear verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or Galatians chapter five that says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So God calls us to not lay the blame of our temptations at his feet, but instead to use those moments to take a careful look within our soul at our desire and then run to Jesus to say to him, would you help me? My heart is so conflicted. I want to be loved. I want to be affirmed. I want to be secure. I want to be safe. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And here, the sovereign God of the universe that has all grace available wants you to come to him and say, at the end of the day, Jesus, what I want is I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. Fourth and finally, we then are called to act in faith. The Bible calls us to take steps of faith based upon what we believe to be true. We take steps that match what we believe. So therefore, even though we're still struggling, we choose our words carefully. We shut down the computer, put away the phone, wait a day before responding to that email. Pour out your heart in prayer, read the Bible, be generous with your money, respond in kindness and countless other ways where we tangibly demonstrate, I trust you, I don't trust my own heart. and you begin to build the habits of holiness and the habits of grace as you respond to temptations that come your way, and you don't lay the blame at other people's feet, at the devil's feet, or at God's feet, but instead you use the temptation to have a careful conversation about your soul, and you take your broken, imperfect heart, and you lay it before the Lord and say, I need your help. Like I need your help. My heart is so bad. James calls us to find the freedom of wrestling with broken desires as we bring them to Jesus. And that's one of the ways that we remain joyfully steadfast in the midst of trial. I want you to bow your heads with me. Whether you're in the room or at home, I want you just to have a moment before we sing together. And could I just ask you to do some heart searching even right now? I'm going to read through the list of the I wants, and can you just evaluate, is that you? I want to be liked, I want to be loved, I want to feel safe, I don't want to be afraid, I want to be secure, I want to be treated fairly, I want to be desired, I want to be respected, I want to be affirmed, I want to be praised. What is it for you? And if you're a Christian, could you just lay that at the feet of Jesus today and say, Lord, help me, help me, help me. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe today would be the day where you turn to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I I don't know how to fix any of that. I can't, I want you to become my savior and Lord today and repenting and turning to Christ. Friend, you could be a new creature right now. So let me give you about 15 to 20 seconds here just to quietly meditate on those I want statements, and then we're going to sing together and rejoice in the fact that God's mercy is more than our misplaced desires.